this morning we're going to be looking at Zechariah as we continue here. I'm actually going to just do an overview of three chapters. You'll see how these fit together as we talk about the first coming of the king. And I'm going to pray and then we'll be working our way through the text as we go through the message. So let's pray. Father, just thank you for the great things you're doing. That was so fun to see the video of the kids um, competing and playing and learning new soccer skills. Thank you for Butch and Luke and all of the people uh, who helped with that camp this week. It was a great, great opportunity to glorify you. And Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, would you use it in our life to encourage us, to teach us, to challenge us? Help us, Lord, as we continue to walk with you to see what an awesome God you are and to see your sovereign plan for our life and for the ages to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, following our national conference this year, Gail and I uh, did a short road trip through central California, and we went up to see Yosemite National Park. I had always wanted to be there, and I've got a couple pictures I'm going to show you that are just, you know, I'm looking at this screen and that screen. I like the color on this one, but that's up on the wall. (laughs) No, um, if you've ever been there, you know, you recognize this scene when you come into the gateway of Yosemite National Park, and you see El Capitan on the left, and you see the peaks on the right, and you're entering into this beautiful valley. It was everything people have said it would be. You can go to the next slide. And when you get in there, we did some hiking. We went to a place called Mirror Lake, and you just see these granite walls that just tower above you all the way around, and it's a pretty awesome sight. And when you uh, get up on top, you can go to the next picture, and, and you look out over the peaks of these mountains. You see Half Dome, and actually what you see in the distance are these Smaller peaks that recede, going farther and farther away. And when you look at that kind of scene, you know, you really have no idea how far it is between those mountain peaks. You have no idea the depth of the valleys that will be in between or how far apart they are as they stretch on for miles and miles. From our perspective, it looks like they're all part of one continuous chain. Well, that illustrates a truth about biblical prophecy. There is something in prophecy that is called prophetic perspective. And what that means is that to the prophets, everything that they talked about was in the future. The events that were coming were like mountain peaks stretching out before them. And they spoke about the first coming of the king, the Messiah who was going to come. They talked about the second coming of the king. They talked about the millennial kingdom, the new heaven, new earth, the eternal state, all of those things. And often they spoke about those things in the very same passage. Sometimes in the same verses they're referencing two different events that are going to take place. And that's what makes it so challenging, if you will, to do a study of biblical prophecy. Because you read it and you read through it like we are today and you're going to go, well, that one hasn't been fulfilled yet, but boy, I recognize that verse or I see where that was fulfilled in Christ's first coming. To the prophets, it was all future. And they spoke about these things like they were one event that was going to come. They didn't see the church age in between the peaks of Jesus' first coming and second coming. They didn't know how long that would last but they understood that they were speaking about the Messiah. 
They knew about his suffering and the glory that would follow, and they knew that they were serving you and me. They wrote these things down so that we might understand what is even still to come in our generation. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through this particular passage in Zechariah 9 to 14, these last chapters of his uh, book are about the future coming of the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. It was written late in Zechariah's lifetime, around 480 AD, so still almost 500 years before Jesus would even be born. It is in two parts. There are two messages, if you will, or they are called oracles in this particular book, and an oracle is a burden, a burden that the prophet has on his heart, a burden for God's people. The first message or oracle is found in chapters 9 to 11, and it talks about the first coming of the king, the Messiah. And that's what we're going to look at today. And the second oracle we'll look at next week that talks about the second coming of the king. But even as I say that, first and second coming, there is some overlap between them. And we'll see that again as we walk through this text. So this morning, I'll be your tour guide. We're going to walk through these chapters. I'm going to show you some great things along the way, and maybe you'll see and learn something that is new this morning that you have not seen before. Let's start with the coming of the king in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Zechariah begins his prophecy by talking about the restoration of the land of Israel. And this is still in the future. This is still yet to come even for us. And you look at verses 1 to 8, and he'll say things like this. He said, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. It's the land of Syria. It will rest upon Damascus, the capital of Syria. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And upon Hamath too, which borders on it. And upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful, Tyre and Sidon being in what would be modern Lebanon. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like dirt of the streets. She was at the crossroads of trade on the Mediterranean and into the Middle East and possessed great wealth. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon, now we're going farther south. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. And Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. He's talking about this land of the Philistines along the coast of Israel going down toward Egypt, that that land is also going to be conquered. What is happening here is that God is saying there's a day coming when he's going to drive out the enemies of Israel and they will possess the land fully. In biblical times, the phrase was used from Dan to Beersheba. Dan being in the north, bordering on Lebanon and Syria. The northern tribes of Israel were there and it went down to Beersheba and the Negev toward Egypt. But this is even greater. This is not just going up to those borders, but this is also possessing what would be the land of modern-day Lebanon and Syria down to Egypt. That whole area, a significant part of what is called the Levant, that ISIS today wants to take over and control all of. There's a day coming 
when Israel's land will not be divided, but she will possess all of it, and God will do it. There will be a day of joy and celebration in the future to Zechariah's writing because there's a day when the Messiah is going to come. And he talked about that in verse 9, and he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so there's this day that's going to come, he says, in the future when you will see the Messiah coming into the city of Jerusalem. This is your king. This is the one who is going to sit on David's throne and whose kingdom will never end. This is the one that they were looking forward to. And he will come to you. He will come for your benefit and for your great joy. So rejoice, Jerusalem. Shout and praise the Lord for what he is about to do. You recognize those verses, don't you? We've heard them before when we think of Palm Sunday and what Jesus did when he rode into the city of Jerusalem. But Zechariah also tells us something about the character of this king. This king is unlike any other earthly ruler. He is righteous, perfectly righteous. He is just and good and morally pure. He brings salvation. He will save his people. And you can see from this context how they were thinking politically, He's going to save them, or from their enemies, he's going to deliver them. But we know from the New Testament that when Jesus came that first time, his focus was not upon political deliverance or an establishment of an earthly kingdom. His focus was spiritual deliverance, forgiveness of sins, the creation of a new people, the church, the people of God who would be called out from all the nations. This king is gentle and humble. We see it in the way that he comes into the city not on a war horse, but we see him gentle and riding on a donkey, a beast of burden. And not only that, but the foal of a donkey, the colt. And he comes bringing peace. He comes to establish his peace for all people with God, for all who would call upon him. He is a king like no other, and these texts were the ones that were fulfilled on that Palm Sunday. But from reading it, you can understand why they thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom at that time. They they were like, we read Zechariah. You know, we heard about this time when all the enemies are going to be driven out. Lord, that's why they asked the question. Like in Luke 24, 21, the two men that were walking on the road to Emmaus, And they said, we had thought that this was the time that he was going to establish the kingdom. Or in Acts 1-6, before Jesus' ascension, they said, Lord, is it now? Is it now, Lord, that you're going to come and establish the kingdom? Is this the time? No, that's still in the future. What God is doing today is calling out a people for himself through the gospel who will come and place their trust in Jesus but he is a king like no other king. 
You know, over the past few years, I've been doing some reading. I like to read for enjoyment, and I've been reviewing American history by reading a biography of every president of the United States. I've got two left to go. And it's been interesting. And what you see in reading these biographies of these men who have been the leaders of our nation is that we've had some good presidents, and we've had some great presidents, and we've had some bad presidents. I mean really bad. And some that were so bad that you wonder, in in a sense, how did the nation survive? An example of that was when you take Abraham Lincoln, who was one of the great presidents on anybody's list, Abraham Lincoln is going to be either at the top or near the top. A man who held the nation together in a time of civil war, who saw the need to put an end to slavery and saw a need to preserve the Union. And he did that at the cost of his own life. But when he was assassinated, the man who became president following him, Andrew Johnson, was one of the worst. One of the worst that we ever had. Lincoln had selected him as a vice president thinking Andrew Johnson was from the South and it might help to unify the nation to have someone from the North and from the South on the same ticket. But when Lincoln died, Grant wept. Grant knew what that would mean for the country because Andrew Johnson was opposed to Reconstruction. He was opposed to freeing the blacks. He was opposed to any kind of emancipation effort for them. And he did everything that he could do to obstruct Reconstruction, including the Republicans at that time had passed the Freeman's Act that would have given every liberated slave 40 acres of land, just like the Homestead Act gave people 160 acres of land if they would settle on it. And he vetoed it. He opposed it, and they could not override his veto. And you think about what that would have done for American history if all those who were freed at that time had been given their own land, their own property to farm and feed their family and raise their family, the dignity and worth that that would have given to each of them. And he set back Reconstruction and made it more difficult for 100 years until the Civil Rights Movement. But I come and I look at this king, this Messiah, Jesus. And this king will be perfect in every way. He will be the king above all other kings, and he will represent Yahweh perfectly. It says about this king in Isaiah 9 that he will be a wise ruler, a wonderful counselor. He will have all wisdom. He won't need all of these advisors to inform him of what is being done around the world. He will know the hearts of men and women and children. He will be a strong ruler. He's the mighty God. He'll be a ruler who will be able to implement what needs to be done. He will be a fatherly ruler. He's called in Isaiah the everlasting father. He's a ruler who cares for his flock, his people, like a loving father cares for his children. He will be a peace-bringing ruler. He is called the Prince of Peace and the one again whose kingdom will never end. Could you follow a king like that? You know, when I think about the leaders around the world and I think about the character of the Messiah, I go, amen, Lord. 
we certainly could follow a leader like that. Zechariah went on to describe the blessings of the king and what he will do for his people in chapters 9 and 10. And we pick it up in verse 10, and he tells us that he will bring an end to war. He said in verse 10 that I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. For them, these were the weapons of war. Chariots, war horses, bow and arrow, and he's saying, I'm going to break them. I'm going to put them away. All weapons of mass destruction, if you will, are gone. He will make an end to war. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 says that he will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Imagine that. These weapons of warfare being changed and put to productive use. That's a verse that is carved in stone on one of the walls of the United Nations building. It's the longing of all good people everywhere that there will be a day when the nations will not go to war with one another. Can you imagine what that would be like in our world? Can you think of all the, all the good that could be done if all the money that is spent on armies and weapons and mass destruction and law enforcement and asset management protection and cybersecurity and all of these different things that we are concerned about, if all of that didn't need to be done because people lived in harmony and could trust one another and they could live in peace and celebrate and rejoice together. What a good thing that would be. But we hear that. Here's this one who's going to bring peace to the nations, whose rule will be over all the earth, and we wonder, how will that ever happen? I mean, how is that going to happen? Well, it will only be by his power, not ours. We've tried. We tried the war to end all wars, World War I. That didn't exactly happen. We had the Great War, World War II. We had the great generation who fought those battles to liberate people in Europe, in Japan, China. And we still keep fighting, don't we? There are still wars that go on and on and on. It's going to take a change of heart. It's going to take a change in the heart of every individual. It's going to take someone who is that strong leader and who will rule over the nations. How will it start? Well, it will all begin with the covenant that he has made with his people. And we see that in verse 11. And there is this phrase, he says, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope, and even now I announce to you that I will restore twice as much to you. What is he saying there? That phrase, the blood of my covenant with you, do you recognize that? I read that even this morning in the time that we took communion. 
It's the phrase that Jesus used when he met with the disciples at that last supper and he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The only thing that's going to make possible this peace that will be brought to the whole world is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. And it is those who have come to know him who will be changed by his grace and his mercy. It's the blood of the covenant that makes all of this possible. And when he says, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit, he's talking about what's a waterless pit? That's a dry cistern. And dry cisterns in those days were used like jail cells. I mean, people were lowered into these cisterns and they were held captive until they had paid their penalty or their fine or whatever it might be. And he's saying, I'm going to free your prisoners who are held in bondage to their sins. And I want you to return to your fortresses, O prisoners of hope. You are trophies of my grace. It's like when we have uh, the Minnesota Teen and Adult and Teen Challenge Choir out here, and you have these individuals who are singing about the grace of God that has set them free from their addictions. And they have a story to tell of God's wonderful grace. It's the story that you and I have to tell of how God has freed us from our sins, our bondage, our iniquity. We are trophies of grace. And when he says that I will restore twice as much to you, what does that mean? Well, twice as much, that was the double portion that was the inheritance of the firstborn. He is saying for each of you who have come into a relationship with my son, my Messiah who I sent to you, you will have an inheritance in my kingdom. It's what Peter wrote about when he said in 1 Peter that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or be defiled. It's being kept in heaven for you who by faith have placed your trust in him as your Savior and Lord. You go on in these verses, there's more there than I can bring out all of it, but it talks about how the Lord's going to protect and defend his people. He's our security. And in verses 16 and 17, there's something I just got to point out to you because it's one of those amazing verses. Verse 16 says, The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people, and they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. You get that? It's like, you're going to sparkle. <laughs> I mean, I read that and I kind of chuckle when I read that. I'm thinking about the people of God are going to sparkle like jewels in his crown. That's how he thinks of you. That you are gems to him. You are precious to him. And it goes on to say how attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young men. How attractive and beautiful they will be. And I think of God's grace and mercy that here is so freely poured out. The blessings continue in chapter 10 where ultimately the summary is that the Lord will bring bring peace, prosperity, and plenty. The Hebrew word is shalom. All because of the coming of this king who will restore these things to his people. 
You know, when Gail and I were driving through the Central Valley of California, I mean, it's a land that's so productive. It happened to be a very hot and dry time of the year. They are very desperately dry, so anything that was green was because somebody was putting water on it. It's kind of a, a desert land, if you will, but you put water on it, it's so rich and productive. I mean, it's where half of the nation's produce is growing in that Central Valley and some of the products like you know, strawberries come out of there, uh, vegetables, certain vegetables, pistachio nuts, almonds. You get farther north, it's the vineyards, it's the dairy. I mean, it's just such a rich agricultural region. But I looked at how desperately dry they were. It looked like a grain field at harvest time where a spark could set it ablaze and there were these fires that were going on in the mountains. And then I return home here and I look at where we've had a good amount of rain this year and everything's lush and green. But when I went back to look at my garden, you know, I realized everything's lush and green and so are the weeds, you know. They kind of grow up and they start to take over and you got to stay on top of it. And, you know, nothing's ever perfect, is it? And I long for the day when we will see everything as God created it. Like that day when he made it for the very first time. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And the Lord is saying, one day I'm going to make everything new. Well, you go on to chapter 11 and we see the third thing in this passage that is the rejection of the king. And you just shake your head at this. Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. He began chapter 11 by describing in a poetic way the massive destruction of the land of Israel. He talks about, Open your doors, O Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pine tree, for the cedar has fallen, the stately trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, the dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds, their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions, the lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. It's just, it's just gone, it's being wiped out. And you wonder, what crime is so heinous that it calls for this massive destruction, this severe judgment or punishment? And the answer comes in what follows. It is their rejection of the Messiah, their king. And Zechariah tells a story of two shepherds, the worthless shepherd and the good shepherd. And Zechariah is asked to play the part of the good shepherd who looks over a flock that is fickle and rebellious and that will ultimately turn against him. Zechariah had two staffs that he used to govern this people, if you will. One staff was called favor, it's grace. He would lead them by grace. And the other staff was called union. It expressed God's desire to unite the north and the south again, the northern tribes and the southern tribes to bring Israel together as one people. And they rejected him. In verse 8, we read that the flock detested me and I grew weary of them. They rejected him as their shepherd. They scorned his grace, and his love. And so Zechariah broke the staff as a symbol of their rejection. And in verse 12, Zechariah said, okay, 
You guys are firing me, if you will. Could you at least give me my last paycheck? If you think I'm worth anything at all, you set the price. Verse 12, he said, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. It was a trifling amount. It was the price of a slave, someone who would be just a a common slave that they would buy on the street. That's what they thought of this good shepherd. That's how much they valued him and what he had done for them. And you read that in context, and then you think of Jesus who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That they spurned the righteous one. They spurned Jesus, the Son of God, the one whose life is of inestimable worth, the one who gave his life for our sins. And they said, yeah, this is how we value you. This is what we think of you, 30 pieces of silver. It'd be like you pouring your heart out working for an employer and you ask them to pay you your final pay and they say, ah, we'll give you 30 quarters maybe. Here, you take that. And they rejected the Son of God. And Zechariah was told by the Lord in verse 13, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The handsome price at which they price me. A little bit of sarcasm there. So I took the 30 pieces of silver. I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Here you have this specific prophecy that the price that was paid would be thrown into the temple of the Lord and used to buy a potter's field. You recognize those verses, don't you? The fulfillment of these prophecies is found in Matthew 27, 1 to 10. It's exactly what they did to Jesus. And Matthew attributes the prophecy to Jeremiah because he combines Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah 11, and he mentions Jeremiah because he was the better-known prophet. It's not a mistake. It's not an error. He's just combining those two together. And we see how the Lord, the faithful and good shepherd, was rejected by his own people. The devastation that followed in AD 70 was terrible. The Roman general Titus would march through the land of Israel, destroying it. The temple was burned. That second temple that was being built in Zechariah's day would be totally destroyed and has not been rebuilt to this day. Israel was destroyed as a nation, scattered among the nations, and the church age began, the age in which we live. But even though the nation of Israel rejected him at his first coming, there is still hope. And there is a glorious future for Israel and the people of God that one day God will graft them in again. One day Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom on earth and Jerusalem will be his capital. And all of the promises made to Israel will be fulfilled. And for those who are ready, it will be a day of joy and celebration. But for those who are not ready, for those who rejected him, it will be a day of grief and destruction. Will you be ready Have you placed your trust in him? In one of my favorite books, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, all your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it 
or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Wow. Beyond the grasp of all of us and everybody who lives on this planet, our hopes and dreams and things that we would aspire to or like to see one day. And the greatest of those, this gift of salvation in Christ is there for all who will call upon him. And I love how he puts that one day we're going to awake to find that beyond all hope, it's even greater than we imagined, and it is ours because we know Christ. Or on the other hand, there will be those who will awake to realize it was within their reach and they have lost it forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, what a sobering thought that is. That today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to put our trust in you. And I pray if there is anyone here who's never done that, that they would come to you by faith and place their hope in you as our Savior, our Messiah, the one who is to come. And Father, thank you for these promises so amazingly fulfilled in Jesus' first coming that will also be just as specifically fulfilled when he returns again. Help us to live in the light of that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.